Section 1 of A Short History of France From Caesar's Invasion to the Battle of Waterloo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Pamela Nagami, M.D. A Short History of France From Caesar's Invasion to the Battle of Waterloo by Mary Duclos. Part 1 the italian tradition chapter one the romans in gaul on toute chose considérez les origines ernest renan look to the roots of a thing two thousand years ago the name of france was gaul when julius caesar invaded the country some fifty years before the birth of christ he found it divided into three principal parts there was aquitaine the land of springs and waters, extending in the southwest from the ocean to the Garonne, already a land of pleasant life, rich in commerce and refinement. There was Celtic Gaul, the west, which reached from the Atlantic to the Marne and the Seine. And there was Belgian Gaul, as Caesar calls it, that northeastern space between the Seine and the Rhine an expanse which roughly corresponds to the provinces devastated by the great war metz toul verdun soissons chalons saint quentin arras tournay cambrai noyon beauvais amiens and boulogne were even then the towns of belgian gaul and the inhabitants of these districts said the roman general are braver than any others because not corrupted by the culture and humanities of the roman province that is to say provence already completely latinized nor made effeminate by the passage of our merchants if caesar could revisit france to-day he would find these essential differences still existent the man from the garonne eloquent able versatile fond of his ease seems made by nature for a lawyer or a merchant his neighbor from celtic gaul the breton sailor or the farmer from anjou is gentle obstinate and dreamy careless of comfort or success ever dependent on something beyond the facts of life religion poetry politics or drink but these sons of martha and these sons of mary have more in common than either has with the man from the northeast the keen calculating sparing picar or lorrainer admirable in any battlefield not only on account of his fierce courage but because of his capacity for discipline still as of old horum omnium fortissimus coming from italy to conquer first gaul and then the german tribes caesar was struck by the difference in the worlds that reach from the two banks of the rhine and suddenly struck out an idea which since then has made much stir in the world that the rhine was the natural frontier of gaul on the left bank were studded villages with their fields and gardens for the celts were builders and agriculturists industry and prosperity reigned in their settlements great were their ingenuity and order and they would have been richer and more admirable still but for their extraordinary taste for civil conflict for wars and rumours of wars for party strife and turbulent agitation the gauls were ever lovers of a new thing omnes fairy gallos novis rebus studere any change was welcome 
and especially a change in the direction of stir and strife in gaul writes caesar not only every town but every village and countryside is divided into opposite factions and indeed almost every family is thus split up into two camps each with a chief who protects his partisans and he says that this excess of party feeling is doubtless due to the independent spirit of the gallic race consumed by a passion for equality constantly alarmed lest they suffer the oppression of the great for none of them will bear any sort of tyranny or management and they think their factions will protect them against the despotism of the upper class anyhow the custom obtains throughout the whole of gaul and you will find no city that is not split in twain and yet this people always taking sides was bound in a social order of singular coherence and dignity these independent touchy folk these often insolent gauls possessed great qualities of reverence and firmness they loved their traditions their turbulent democracy respected two classes of men their church and their army their druids and their knights but the druids were something more than a church magistrates as much as priests men of science according to the capacity of their time their seminaries were the equivalent of our universities the movement of the stars the immensity of the universe the nature of things the power and force of the immortal gods form the subject of their debates and of the theories which they transmit to the young these men of gaul so reasonable already with their taste and instinct for philosophy these ancestors of pascal descartes malbranche voltaire were none the less in the eyes of the practical italian extraordinarily superstitious too much addicted to religion he says natio est omnium galorum ad modum dedita religionibus and the geographer pomponius mella also remarks that they were genti superbi superstitiosi it is indeed a constant trait of the race the limits that divide the impossible from the merely unprecedented barely exist for the french miracles wonders marvels are to them merely an extension of nature i think that is the reason the french are so great in physical science caesar already noted their extraordinary inventiveness their adroitness in experiment but this of course is but the body of science the soul of it lies in that imagination which constantly extends the limits of the possible the same pascal who accepts the miracle of the holy thorn invents the barometer and discovers the laws of hydrostatics curie the finder of radioactivity was deeply interested in the medium usapia paladino pasteur was an orthodox catholic a strong vein of religiosity may complicate the mind of the physicist without impairing its lucidity even today caesar might remark the haunting frequency of immaterial influences the sense of forces just behind the veil the religious scruple and confidence and deprecation which still distinguish so many of the children of the druids exciting since there are always two parties in gaul a corresponding energy of materialism in the other half of the nation
All this was changed when Caesar crossed the Rhine. The Germans seemed to him to have no religion at all. No gods, no cultus, no ritual or tradition. They believed only in such things as they could see or feel. Natural objects, the sun, the moon, or thunder. They had no priests. The Druids had no counterpart on the further side of the Rhine. In Gaul, Caesar had found a form of worship comprehensible to him, not unlike the other state religions of the time, Mercury, Jupiter, Venus, or their equivalents. The Germans were different. These two peoples, sprung apparently from the same soil, were hopelessly divided so soon as they raised their eyes to heaven. In the eyes of the Germans, the king was the sole high priest, and after nature, war the only god. Among their many altars, the Gauls raised one to Teuta, the people, the city, as we should say, the state. The Germans had no thought of such a collectivity, but they would die for their leader. War was their real idol. The Germans were rovers, roaming from place to place with no abiding city. They had no fields, no gardens of their own. It was even forbidden to hedge round until a private plot lest the magic of possession dull a man's zest for war. Great were their virtues, they were patient, sparing, chaste, and long-enduring, but thieves to a man. They held it no crime to plunder a neighboring tribe, and they were arrogant, with a rougher, ruder arrogance than the charming impertinence of Gaul. They could bear no equal within a day's journey of them, the lands beyond their forest fastnesses were a wilderness of desolation, for the Germans held it an honor that no man should endure their vicinity. They loved to reign supreme, and the emptiness and solitude of a ravaged desert seemed to them fairer than all the gardens and orchards of the Gauls. End of section 1